Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. My name is Grace Ratley, and today I'm joined by Jamie Smith, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and the Freyland Biomedical Research Institute at Virginia Tech. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing at Virginia Tech? Certainly. So my work is primarily focused on the heart. But really, I consider myself a cell biologist and virologist who's very interested in how cells talk to each other. So all cells communicate directly. And in the, in the heart, that's actually particularly important because that's how electrical impulses are orchestrated and propagated throughout the cardiac tissues who, in, during every heartbeat. And unfortunately, we know in pretty much every form of heart disease, it's alterations in how these impulses are communicated within the tissue that lead to arrhythmias of sudden cardiac death. So we're really trying to understand how cells communicate with each other, how they set up these connections appropriately, and how these connections are disrupted during cardiomyopathy conditions of stress, ischemia, but also uh, how viral infection can affect this and how viruses manipulate intracellular communication outside of the heart and in the heart and how that can lead to sudden cardiac deaths too. Yeah. And so you, in particular, look at things like gap junctions in cardiomyopathy. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? So there's uh, many ways that cells can communicate with each other. And we know that gap junctions are the primary direct means by which this occurs. There are mechanical junctions, which allow for mechanical communication with, between cells. But gap junctions actually provide both a mechanical connection and a metabolic connection. And that's because they actually join the cytoplasms of adjacent cells directly. So they create a channel, a conduit between the two cells where small molecules can pass. So in the heart, for example, these would be ions for electrical impulses, but also second messengers can go through. So like in other tissues, cells can signal to each other electrically or not to propagate signal transduction. And what's really interesting is that the immune system also utilizes gap junctions, both the innate and adaptive aspects of the immune system. So innate-wise, our cells have an intrinsic innate response to things like viral infection that activates the interferon response. And this can actually be propagated to uninfected neighbors through gap junctions. And then also, it's been shown that short peptides can go through gap junctions. So there is a size limitation, but also there's a secondary structure limitation. So so long as they would be linear. Um, and it's thought that an infected cell could communicate viral peptides to an uninfected neighbor. That uninfected neighbor could present said peptides to a cytotoxic T lymphocyte, for example. And so these are two ways that gap junctions can propagate the immune response, but also surveilling cells can also hook up to other cells via gap junction. So they're in all tissues and they're surprisingly dynamic, which is why in the heart, it's particularly important that we understand their biology because in, when the tissue gets stressed, we see a rapid new modeling of these gap junctions. And that's where we can kind of see these electrical disturbances. And so if we understand how they're regulated, hopefully we can figure out how to get them back where they're supposed to be without opening up somebody's chest. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, and what sorts of viruses do affect cardiac function? Several viruses have been attributed to what we call viral myocarditis, which is basically when the heart becomes infected and or inflamed. And the viruses that affect that are, are broad, but the two main ones that I would say that crop up the most are Coxsackie virus and also actually adenovirus is another one. But a lot of viruses, there are cases of them being found in cardiac tissue that aren't normally attributed to that. It's typically pretty devastating when a virus gets into the heart and infects the tissue. And the thing to think about there is that a virus has not necessarily evolved 
to infect the heart. It does, it's, its goal is not to kill the hosts that, you know, essentially that, that way. So it's, it's more that when either a person is predisposed to this or for whatever reason the virus does have a tropism for the tissue that we see this happening. And there's various stages to the disease. There are just acute um, where we can, we can have an infection process where the virus is causing damage by what it's doing. And then the immune system can come in. And unfortunately, we can see in a more chronic situation, it's actually the host immune response that's doing a lot of damage to the heart. And um, we can, we can end up in it with a heart failure situation, which kind of is kind of why I find the heart such a fascinating organ to study because people tend to think about heart disease as an inevitable process of aging, but it's more to do with the fact that I think the heart is this exquisitely dynamic organ that's constantly responding and changing. So unlike other muscle in your body, heart muscle is made up of individual muscle cells. And so they're constantly changing and responding to stress and how they're communicating with each other and how they're contracting. So that's kind of the disease process of myocarditis is the virus could be gone, but the remodeling has started and that's the problem. So what are the primary endpoints of your research? Are you looking to prevent cardiomyopathies from arising when someone has an infection? Or are you looking to just do basic research on how the heart works on a cellular level or develop therapies for, for cardiomyopathies? Um, what are the primary endpoints? The lab really, I mean, it, it spans all of that in a way. The primary endpoint is, of course, to, yes, to develop therapeutics to hopefully correct such electrical disturbances in the heart. A large portion of our work is on how the proteins that make up junctions are synthesized. They're called connexins and how they're translated is kind of interesting. And that's kind of as a virologist, what led me to that was because viruses play tricks on how proteins are synthesized too. And so there's a good overlap there in how we interrogate that biology. In terms of the, the viral aspect of it and viral myocarditis, there's a great need for understanding the mechanisms of, of that disease process. And so how and why certain viruses infect the heart, how direct infection contributes to cardiomyopathy versus that host immune response. But also as we understand the cell biology of how viruses manipulate intercellular communication, then there's a the thought of perhaps antivirals could come in there as well. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, these gap junctions that in your heart are communicating electrical signals, they also propagate immune responses and antiviral immune responses. So it makes sense that viruses would target these structures as they've evolved. And that's indeed what we found. And while this in an epithelial situation can be, you know, whatever irritating, give you a cough in the heart, that's going to be devastating, right? And potentially deadly. And then the, the other thing to think about is that if the virus is targeting a particular structure in the cell or, you know, hijacking it or changing it for its own good, it's doing so probably in the most efficient way possible. And so we can identify kind of the critical signaling hubs in the cell that are regulating gap junctions by seeing what the virus is going for. And then we go beyond viral infection, right? So we use the virus to tell us what to look for if we want to therapeutically manipulate gap junctions. So that's kind of where big picture kind of end goals of the lab, really. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in cardiomyopathy and everything. Yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of where I like to speak to trainees as well about not necessarily having your, your life planned out meticulously in front of you. And then, you know, with science, you don't know what opportunities or interests will come your way, right? I did my undergraduate in University College Dublin in microbiology. And the way that was structured was that you start, I did science to start, and then you have four subjects, and then you, you specialize every year. And by third year, I'd really got interested in microbiology and virology. And then 
the only time in my life my name was picked out of a hat was in uh, fourth year of our undergraduate where we had a chance to do a, a research project. And I actually got to work on HIV, trying to identify different uh, stereotypes of HIV in the Irish population. And that was just an incredible experience for me to work in a virology lab, but also like, you know, with actual human samples, etc. So then hooked on viruses, I did my PhD, then on an RNA virus in Trinity College, Dublin, that was using these RNA viruses, alpha viruses, to actually elicit anti-tumor immune responses. So as opposed to virology per se, it was more like using a virus for what we call oncolytics. So basically trying to use viruses that have been manipulated so they're not necessarily going to replicate the same way to treat cancer and basically elicit the immune response against cancer. And then that actually took me to my postdoctoral training at University of California, San Francisco, still focused on cancer biology and virology. And that actually is where adenovirus came in. And I worked with Claude O'Shea and Frank McCormick on uh, how adenovirus would manipulate uh, the DNA damage response. And then also um, they're very interested in developing adenoviruses for oncolytics. But then is when kind of so partially intentional, partially not intentional by people moving to different cities and my personal life not making me want to move to different cities <laughs> and other opportunities arising. I actually switched fields into the cardiovascular space. And what was really attractive to me was the fact that you know, as a virologist and as a cancer biologist up to that point, I kind of got my head stuck inside the cell, right? So I was always imagining the signaling pathways going on inside the cell and the infected cell. But I wasn't thinking about how that's not biology, right? So it's like it's lots of cells talking to each other and some of them are infected and some of them are not infected. And, and um, that whole how cells communicate and how that biology really got interesting to me. And that's when I switched into the cardiovascular space and gap junctions. And this is where, you know, it was quite a challenging time because I was changing fields. But then in retrospect, it was really good because I came at, you know, cardiovascular cell biology from a kind of epithelial cancer background and virology. So I had a different angle than other people. You know, I was very fortunate with, you know, my advisor, Robin Shaw, et cetera, that, you know, we basically were able to ask some questions in different ways. And I think that's really good. So I always say to people, like, if... If you find yourself in a situation where things are changing and not necessarily how you planned prior to that, I'm yet to have that happen to me and not look back a year later and go, thank God that happened, right? Because things are, are better. So then, you know, that's when I worked mainly on gap junction biology, how gap junctions are formed, how the cell puts them where it's supposed to go, how that's changed in stress. But all the time, kind of in the background, I was keeping on this virus work that I was just fascinated by. Some viruses like RNA viruses their life cycles were quite rapid, like SARS-CoV-2 as well. Like once that, those kind of positive sense RNA viruses, once that RNA is in the cytosol, it's ready to go. But then DNA tumor viruses like adenovirus have a longer life cycle. Coronaviruses too, but adenovirus definitely, I was saying, there's no way they're going to leave gap junctions the way they are, right? So I'd kind of been looking at that in the background. And then we hit on the translation work, which basically got me at the point where I was ready to start my own team when I went to Virginia Tech. That's when I started reintroducing the virology. So we're, work, we're working on how gap junctions are synthesized at the uh, translational level. Uh, we have some very fundamental work there where we're just looking at how ribosomes or certain RNA binding proteins bind RNA, where Connexin is this wonderful tool for that. Then translating that to heart disease, but then also how viruses manipulate that, how viruses manipulate gap junctions directly. And then a great pleasure, but it's also been able to fall back on the cancer background, where now I actually actively collaborate with a bunch of colleagues here at Virginia Tech working on cancer biology and gap junctions, where they're very important also kind of a full circle on where I started, where I've gone from virus to cancer to heart. And now all of them are kind of a key part of my research, which is really rewarding. I imagine it is. I feel like one of the 
issues in academia where it's quite common is people go into their PhD in a particular subject and then they do postdoc in that subject. And then they, after postdoc, they start their own lab in that subject. And it's, you, you just get more and more specialized. And it, it's very difficult, I think, for people to change subjects. How do you think that we could maybe encourage people to look outside of their particular niche and, and feel a little less stuck? How could we support people in transitioning into different fields? Right. I mean, I think part of the reason why, you know, academia is so research focused is that we need fresh minds coming in, right? Because people get affected by dogma. And so you have these people asking questions that you would never ask because you think they would never work. And then you're like, oh, hang on, actually, maybe go for it. To think outside the box and expose yourself to such things, I would say whatever training institution you're at would be to seek out. Sometimes there's common things like uh, research and progress seminar series. I know at UCSF where we were, there was one of those. And it would be quite diverse presentations from different departments and institutes. And that's actually when I started hitting on the translation initiation work in the cardiovascular institute that I was in. I, I was kind of, you know, hitting a wall in terms of getting some ideas of what was going on. And then I put myself forward for one of these rips, which were common to UCSF, so all like, postdocs from all over the place. And then some of the cancer team were looking at similar stuff and they were able to provide reagents and advice. And I met with them and that kind of showed me that, you know, it's, you know, what actually that's what I like about my research institute here is that it's not an X institute. It's a biomedical research institute. So I rub shoulders with neuroscientists and cancer biologists and structural biologists and behavioral scientists. So that kind of we've had many instances where a conversation over a beer after work has led to a successful grant and publication between a cancer biologist and a neuroscientist, you know. That's the way to go. I think and just be open to it and put yourself into those situations, even though they're scary, especially as a trainee. I think that's that's kind of what I would say. It's good advice. I feel like with the pandemic, a lot of people may, did make transitions into like looking into virology and seeing how they can support it from an engineering perspective or from a cancer, I don't know, perspective. And I, I hope that it leads to more openness within academic science to explore other fields and to build collaborations with people in different disciplines of biological sciences or, or beyond biological sciences. And and viruses are an excellent tool for that because, I mean, there are some people doing crazy things with viruses, building batteries and using them as vectors for therapeutics and just really amazing. Yeah, it's pretty humbling biology the virus, you know, and so that's kind of what's kept me hooked on being a virologist is just how, you know, it's it's just information, but it can hijack something as exquisite as the human cell, you know, so it's, and it's, you know, sometimes very little piece of information. That's, again, the power of using them to understand our cell biology, because they only have a limited amount of material they can bring in to take over everything. Yeah, certainly. So how did you become interested in science? Like, were you a, a science kid growing up? I was... Always interested in science, very much so. When I look back, I would never build what I was supposed to build with the Lego. I would build some kind of machine or something. And then I was always outside digging up stuff and looking at insects. And, you know, I lived, I grew up beside the sea and that was pretty cool to kind of see the life there, you know. I was also actually quite into art. And as a teenager, I found myself not really knowing what I wanted to do because I had so many interests. And I think that kind of it was difficult, but at one point, my parents brought me to a guidance counselor, and they basically said that. <laughs> so they were like, yes, you have parts. You're just interested in everything. 
And so I just I made the decision to do science then because I just figured I loved the art and everything, but it wouldn't, wasn't going to be a career for me. My father was an architect, so that was interesting. And I always thought about doing that. But then I just got my sister did science and I just got really, I really fascinated by what she was saying when she's coming out from college. And the other good thing, again, I think I said this earlier about the way it was structured in University College Dublin was like the first year you did like biology, chemistry, physics computer science or, you know, some mix of those broad. And then the second year you chose like microbiology, a specific subset of chemistry, biochemistry, and then the third year microbiology and then fourth year microbiology. And so it was kind of that kind of, I knew going into it, I could kind of feel out in the first year of what I was interested in. And then it was that virology project in fourth year that took me to the next level, but no, nothing specific except that I just found the world a bit fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It just slightly reminds me of the path of Santiago Cajal. And he was uh, really interested in art as a kid. And then he started exploring connections between cells. I mean, that's what he got the Nobel Prize for was, you know, synapses and, and gap junctions and things. I think one of the things people don't realize is that a lot of scientists have a creative side and interest. You know what I mean? So they're either very much interested in the arts or have some kind of artistic outlet, be it music, be it art, um, remarkable number of my colleagues. And that's because I think science, you need to be able to have that creativity to connect things. And it's not just, you know, learning things off by heart and this like, you know, dull studying thing. It's, it's like everybody's stepping into this black box and you have to imagine and make a leap connect, you know, these distant things, like I said, I think having a bit more of a creative background or creative thinking enables that process in a way that, you know, I don't think people who are not scientists appreciate or understand uh, sometimes. Certainly. That kind of brings me into this piece kind of about like science education and science outreach. And you do a little bit of that um, with Goodwill. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Sure. I mean, that's one of the things I've enjoyed about moving to Roanoke here with the research institutes is the accessibility of the community. So organically, the research institute has kind of developed various ways of maintaining community interaction from, you know, having open lectures, public lectures, etc. But then at the younger level, it's kind of, you know, there's opportunity to expose children to what's happening in their own city. That's pretty exciting and hopefully inspirational, you know, for them to stay in STEM. And I spoke at a City Works, it was called. It was kind of an event about urban development. And it was kind of what's an Irish and Irish scientist and French scientist doing in Roanoke. That's kind of the premise. So we're, you know, so we're just talking about the perfect setup here for, for doing this. But from that came a relationship with Goodwill, where they saw that talk. And they actually run a science camp in Roanoke every summer. And so invited me to go out and give a talk. These are children between the age of about eight and 12 years of age. And uh, it allows us to kind of showcase what we're doing at the research institute, talk to them about careers in science, talk to them about our journeys as scientists and what took us here. And then we've also had the opportunity since then to develop that and actually bring them to the institute rather than me just going out and talking to them for an hour. And they get a full tour of the research institute, get to put their hands in a few microscopes, see some cells beating down there, and then also be exposed to different, not just me, but then, you know, my colleague Sammy and his cancer research, Sarah Parker and her simulation lab, about which studies how teams operate in hospitals. The idea being to kind of also show the various career paths in STEM, right? So it's not just academia and becoming a professor, right? There's like a bunch of other ways. If you train in that, in that field, you can have a really fascinating career and contribute to society. 
that's something that we're still working on developing in terms of being able to maintain relationships with these children. And then as they get into high school level, bring them into the labs. We have relationships with some high schools here in Roanoke. Um, I usually have one or two high school students in the lab, you know, if we get them at that young age interested, but then, you know, you've got to maintain that contact and then hopefully get them back into volunteer a little bit later. And this is, you know, hopefully going to contribute to not only building the relationship with the community here in Roanoke, but also diversify the workforce more, which is everybody is, you know, pretty keen on and, you know, supporting these days. So at last. Yeah. I mean, those are experiences that those kids are going to remember. I mean, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, we do. We also do. um, We do. I run an undergraduate program in the summer too. So we have really a really good array of imaging equipment at the FBRI and a lot of universities or, or, you know, local universities around here sometimes that don't have that kind of material to train undergraduates on um, and, or prepare them for the, the graduate level if they're interested in that. So we do a 10-week summer program on molecular visualization, and we have uh, students from all over America come into that, some from Virginia Tech, of course, but also local colleges that, you know, again, like I mentioned, that, that, that wouldn't have those resources. And it's been really rewarding to see that those programs really work. And like we see all of the the students, you know, the fellows move into, you know, either medical school, but also a lot of them doing PhDs now as well. And that facilitated that. That's another kind of further stage up, but uh, also important, I think, to intervene at the undergraduate stage too. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine it's very fulfilling given that you were inspired in your undergraduate research experience to pursue the field that you did. So it's great to be able to reach back and pay it forward. What sorts of advice would you have for students more at like maybe a graduate level or postdocs, these people who are pursuing a career in research? Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said earlier, be careful about closing doors in terms of like being too focused on one particular thing. I mean, especially as the graduate student postdoc thing is it it's a very difficult time. It's a time of great uncertainty and it's a time of intense pressure and burnout and anxiety. And some of that anxiety comes from not knowing what's next. And so definitely, if you know what you want to do, you can focus in on that and like make sure you build the appropriate CV for that next step. Think about you only have a certain amount of energy and make sure that whatever you're doing is going to be measurable and develop a product that will contribute to you achieving that next step. You can often get sucked into a lot of different things, some of which are not going to appear on your CV. So, I mean, if you want to do academia, definitely papers and grants. Right. I mean, that's it. First and foremost, everything else is icing. When I look at the CV, the first thing I look at is the papers and grants and I make a decision and then we look and see other parts of that CV. For PhD students also, I would just say, get your PhD. <laughs> so um, it's, it's remarkable. You know, it's just like, is what you're doing going to get you your PhD? It's great to get involved in a lot of different things. But again, make sure you're on track with your committee, et cetera, and kind of getting that PhD because that's ultimate goal. You can change the world after that. And then for postdocs, this is where I've seen all of my friends over the years either go into academia or industry or something different. This is where I think there's a lot of imposter syndrome. There's a lot of that anxiety still. But I mean, part of the career is this kind of four to five year installments of not knowing what's next, like I said. And so for again, for postdocs, it's about, you know, not closing doors, applying. Even if I'm not being asked to, I would apply for funding. And building a network is huge and putting yourself out there and presenting at every opportunity you can. And like I said, back at UCSF, like if there's these, if there's an opportunity to interact with diverse scientific groups, do that. Early in my postdoc, even before then, but 
certainly when I started the postdoc at UCSF, I had a constant sense that I was never going to become a PI and I wouldn't, didn't have what it took. And then I did have an epiphany when you just suddenly realize that, you know, this is so daunting. Everybody is in the same boat. Like nobody really understands. Nobody understands everything. You know, this is where this like working with people to achieve the project is what's just now everywhere. So you can't, as a scientist, basically do everything. You can't be stuck in the corner doing your own projects and expect to like move as quickly as people who have actually reached out and built that way. But, but also I think just the concept, the imposter syndrome, really understand that, no, these people don't know all that stuff that you think they know um, and that everybody's kind of struggling. Um, I think it's something that was really important to me and kind of helped me have the confidence to keep going. And then the other thing is in terms of early career faculty, one of the biggest challenges that I found was balancing grant writing with paper and manuscript publication. So you get stuck in this cycle of generating data for the grant and preliminary data, and then you're not necessarily producing papers. And then, you know, there comes a point where the reviewers for those grants are going to, are looking for papers. And so it's kind of that balance is actually critical for early career uh, assistant professors to make sure that productivity is up while still trying to get funding in. And that's something that I think time management is important for. And what is certainly also lacking in the field that I would change if I could, and I think is changing, is an increased focus on providing management training for academics. You know, they train people to publish papers and write grants, but not how to deal with six different personalities and keep them productive. And, you know, each of those personalities is valid, even if they're very different to you. And so doing some kind of training in uh, leadership and management, I think, is something that a lot of people should think about doing as postdocs, regardless of what career they end up in. That skill is, is very important, I think, in, in all career fields, not just science. Yeah. And I, I do wonder why imposter syndrome is so prevalent in science. Like, I feel like, I mean, yeah, like it exists everywhere, but, but I feel like it's especially pervasive within especially academic science. Do you perhaps have any thoughts on that? I don't know either. I, I do think that there is a feeling in academic science to portray yourself in a way that can make others feel, give other people imposter syndrome. People are so scared of showing weakness or whatever, or, but I would like to think that that is changing. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. Like, I mean, I guess the, the constant need to justify yourself and your science. And I mean, every time you start a conversation with, with someone, they're like, okay, but why is that important? You know, like, why do connections matter? Right. But that's the thing that's right. So that the, actually the culture of training is very critical, right? You're constantly being, you know, questioned and criticized and, 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 you know, and it's all part of the training. And it's now as a, uh, somebody who's, evaluating students you know i understand like it's not about necessarily them expecting them to know everything but it's about trying to understand how far they're taking their thinking the process of getting there i think involves growth you know the reason i say that it's, it's so rewarding when you see a trainee be they from a technician or high school students who are graduates to a postdoc who's when you just see growth and you see that development and and being part of that and helping them get to the next stage is kind of why i've, I've, I've stuck in academia, I think more than anything, it's an interesting career, but it's incredibly rewarding looking back. I mean, the things, the freedom uh, is, is, is pretty great, despite all the, the pressure and competitiveness. And how do you cope with all of the pressure of getting grants and publishing or perishing and, and all of that? So I guess where, you know, this would again be going back to what to say to trainees, 
and it's probably such a cliche, people hate hearing it, but I don't take it personally anymore. <laughs> um, so I've, I've learned to understand criticism and identify constructive criticism and not be emotional about stuff, you know, and so it's, it's really about like seeing, you know, seeing the end goal. So with grants, yes, there's a lot of pressure, but it's part of the system. And it's actually a really good part of the system. After a few years of being in it now as a PI, I understand the importance of being made to distill your ideas into a way that you can communicate them to, to your peers and ask them to fund your work. So the process of grant writing, I now have tried to transition in my head from a, this horrible, stressful thing to a way of distilling my work. The other thing is, I think it's important to protect time for yourself. So in terms of time management is very difficult in research because cells don't know that it's Sunday, you know, so, so it's like so, but you can plan your work to protect time where you really need to step away from it because otherwise it just all blurs into this horrible, stressful mess and nothing gets done. And so I think it's very important to, to totally step away for periods of time and then refocus. And that's where extracurricular activities like running or sports come into it, you know, and, or art or whatever it is that can take, stop you from being in, the, in it. Certainly. And do you still create art? What sorts of hobbies do you have to help you uh, step away from work? Don't do much art anymore, except figures for my reviews. <laughs> but uh, I run, which I really enjoy. That's my what switches me off. I also enjoy a lot of here. We're very fortunate to have some pretty beautiful hiking around Roanoke. The same was back at UCSS, UCSF, obviously in California. But the great thing in Roanoke is it's just outside my door. We enjoy hiking, dog. Um, did you just hear him bark? So <laughs> <laughs> perfect timing. What else? Uh, love food, cooking. When there's not a pandemic, very much into traveling. That's great. Do you have any kind of thoughts on where you hope that your field is going? Or One of the misconceptions, I think, from non-virologist scientists sometimes is that when a cell is infected, it's just dying. Whereas it's it's not. It's altered and it's turned into like the living state of the virus where it's being manipulated to, to make more virus. And I always remember somebody who was not a virologist saying like, I was showing some image of a nucleus of an infected cell and they were like, well, that's just a mess. And I was like, no, that is like an exquisitely repurposed cell that, you know, I really hope non-virology people kind of get that into their head that basically cells aren't just dying. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing cell biology that we can understand how cells work during this process. And then just how humbling this is and how difficult it is to kind of sometimes think about connecting these processes together is where, you know, I like non-scientists understand how what an amazing creative and fun career this is and if people are daunted by science or i could never do that it's absolutely not true and it's something that you just need to be committed to and, and, and enjoy people hear you're a scientist and they suddenly get all oh you must be so smart etc and that doesn't speak to me in any way so i think it's a it's more of a passion about questions and being humbled by biology than feeling that way Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Jamie. I had a really excellent time talking with you and thank you so much. All right. Take care of yourself.